Right across the street from the ghost of Think Skateboards in the Bayview neighborhood of San Francisco, I'm Freddie Levy, and this is Talkin' Schmidt. Today on the show, my good friend Jeremy Fish, mayor of North Beach, leader of the infamous Silly Pink Bunnies, and wearer of all brown, talks Schmidt about his 25 years in his beloved city of San Francisco, skateboarding and art. His contributions to all three are immeasurable, and it's a pleasure to hear the stories, trials, and tribulations that have helped shape his time here, the place that he calls home. Jeremy is definitely on that glass half full lifestyle and fully backs the slogan, you can't hate it if you never loved it, from the recent movie, The Last Black Man in San Francisco. And I was like, man, that's the quote. And it's positive. Matter of fact, as corny as it is, I may wind up getting a tattoo of that. It's too easy right now to find fault and find things that suck and find things that are fucked up and find, and you, you know, I'm not saying ignore it. Mm-hmm. These are the realities of living here. The film is a, is a really beautiful reminder that like, there's a lot of good reasons to still be here. And like, it really depends on the way you're viewing it and the lens you look through to see the city for what it is and realize what's happening is a transitional phase. It's not permanent. It's not like this place is just gonna be like this from now forward, it'll continue to evolve. This is Jeremy Fish and you're listening to Talking Schmidt. How should we start this off? You should introduce me as quite possibly the worst skateboarder you've interviewed thus far. (laughs) (laughs) Like just because I'm up against some real heavy hitters, you know? Yeah. I was never professional at anything other than maybe my job, but definitely not skateboarding. I was on flow for vision when I was in uh, 10th grade. Mm -hmm. You know who my team manager was? Don motherfucking Fisher. How's that for a full circle? And as a matter of fact, when I first went in there to apply for a job, he remembered me. I mean, because our last names, you know? <laughs> you know, it was funny because Tommy, when you did the one with Tommy, he did. He said the exact same thing I've been thinking, which is like, dude, I want to say we're back, but then the Nine Club says it every episode, like, we are back. And it's like, you want to avoid that so much. How come he's so good at everything? He was fucking incredible at it. And I was just like, man, is there anything you're not good at? Like, And I don't know if you can tell, probably not. But like, I used to see Jake around here a lot, like for the last... 10 years plus and he's always been super good to me like he's not I don't know he's never been anything but really nice to me and uh, that day I had just talked about how I see him around all the time and how I'd seen him in the coffee shop just a few days before Mm -hmm. as I said it he walked by like like four seconds or something like that yeah and Tommy's like there he is and I was like shut the fuck up and he's like hang on he like opened the door. That's when he comes in, and he's like, "Oh, it's a big word, Tommy. You can't even swim." That was <laughs> like, amazing. But yeah, the kid filming it couldn't believe it, and he's like, "I don't know. There's like, you know, I don't think they could edit it so you could really tell that's exactly what happened." But yeah. man, I mean, what the fuck? Well, not how about not? And we're back. Like, here we go again. Just gonna do all cars right here. Oh, big dogs in. Hey. What do you think, Schmitty? 96 times Schmitty. Thanks, Schmitty. We on? Schmitty? Talking Schmitty. He's so fucking bitchy. The cherry popper. I shit my pants, man. Your Rolodex is fucking deep. Are you ready? Come on, Schmitt. I'm here for Greg Yeah! I love my bros. Okay, hello, everybody. Guess what? This episode is dedicated to Brian Coons. Yep, that's right. Hashtag just for you, Steve. Uh, We got sitting at the table with me, none other than Jeremy Fish. Thank you for having me, dude. No, you're having me. We're here in North Beach in your facility. And uh, yeah, this is my first time here checking it out. I wanted to invite you over here because I don't know how long I've got it. And it's a really crazy spot to hang out. 
And especially when you think about the fact that we're like in the heart of one of the oldest neighborhoods in what is the most expensive city in the United States. Right. And we're just lurking in a 5,000 square foot bakery. Like it's a funny time in the city's history to sit around and shoot the shit in North Beach. Yeah. Before we start, have you heard any of these things? Between the last time I saw you and now, I've become a podcaster. I knew that. I was aware. I had hoped it was a fishing term, uh-huh. uh, but no. I've since learned that that's uh, when you record with your bros and catch up on old times. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, is a good enough reason to pull out all this equipment and look really high tech. Yeah. I liked that part. You had like a bag full of tech. Well, it was cool. My girlfriend got me the uh, recorder. In doing so, she became the executive director. So, oh, shit. Yeah, it was a big, big move. Whose idea was this project? Yours or hers? This was mine, and then we kind of talked about it together and launched it as a unit. It was a huge step in our uh, relationship. Hmm. Who was your first bro? It's a crazy one because I think the first one was actually Evan Becker, but the first one I launched, episode one, is Alex Horn. And I'm not exactly sure why it happened out of unison. In the early ones, well, still, I'm clearly not knowing what I'm doing. But in the early ones, I was making a lot of mistakes. And I'd have to do some extra editing or re-audio. And, and then Farmer was in there. It was like one, two, and three. Those were the top, the first three. What was your favorite so far? Out of all of them? Uh-huh. Whew. I really liked um, Ron Allen. His was the longest one. And I was kind of scared, like, dude, is this too long? But then I could have talked to him for another two hours. Fascinating. Him, dude. Keith Cochran, McKenney, those ones were a joy. I don't know. They're all rad in different ways. Right on. You listened to the Keith one you were saying? Yeah. That's how I found out about it. Okay. Almighty Coons texted me. Ooh. I was like, you got to check this out. AKA Steve. Might have got it from him and Matt D. Shout out. Uh, both of them knew that I'd want to listen to it, as I am well known for being a giant Keith Cochran fan. When you're doing work and stuff, do you listen to music or podcasts or anything, or you like it more quiet? You know, it's embarrassing. I'm super low tech. I listen to the radio. Uh-huh. I listen to the uh, KCSM. Oh, like, really? Uh, the jazz station from San Mateo. Dude, that's my alma mater. Yeah, man. College of San Mateo, 92. I listen to music, but I haven't really been able to get into... I listen to audiobooks a lot, which you would think you'd be able to transition from that to podcast, but for whatever reason, I think maybe because it's a little too engaging, I wind up stopping what I'm doing and, like, staring at the sound and, like, you know, I'm more paying attention to that. Same thing with when I work to, like, television or something like that. Like, I just stop paying attention and, like, start watching the show. I could see that. I, I was listening to audiobooks a lot, and then I started listening to podcasts, and I feel like it kind of made it harder to listen to the audiobooks. I was trying to use uh, Tommy's podcast. It's, like, my gateway podcast. Uh-huh. But, again, it just became too distracting. Like, somebody he'd be interviewing I thought was too rad. Yeah. I stopped what I was doing. and So I'll try it again with yours. Okay. But chances are if I have to listen to Tim McKenney for more than 10 minutes, <laughs> I'm going to start jumping around. Like, it, that dude's way too rad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it makes getting things done a little difficult. All right. The basics, which we kind of already know, but we're going to go through them, is you were born in Albany, New York. Yep. Raised in Saratoga Springs. Yeah. Grew up with Matt D? Yeah. Our same town? My best friend since we were eight. Shout out. Right. And we went to elementary school together. That's so sick because I knew that. But as I've been doing these and kind of doing a little research on everybody too, 
I learned you had a way bigger crew from that area than I knew. And I know a lot of those dudes, but I didn't know you guys were like Rick and uh, is it uh, Jake from out there somewhere too? Paladino from Hightower? Uh, yeah, he is. Yeah, I didn't know him in high school. All those guys are. Shane is from up there as well. But yeah. those guys are closer to New York, where Andreas is from. Uh, okay. Those guys all grew up together. Right. But I met that whole army of dudes out here and just realized that we were all from like an hour and a half away from each other. It's amazing. Sean, John, like there's yeah. so many dudes. I was like, this is amazing. Uh, Skateboarding is really popular in upstate New York, and it's just way better here by the 90s, so everybody got here, you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, in th- this town's change a lot it was a lot easier to come out here then it'll be 25 years next month so more time here than there oh yeah i moved here when i was 19 and didn't ever expect to be here this long you know but you got into skateboarding in uh oh yeah yeah, albany or saratoga i started when i was 13 i was just born in albany i never lived there oh my parents lived right outside it when i was born Uh uh-huh and then my family moved all over the northeast okay Uh, and then i my mom and my dad split up when i was eight and we moved back to Saratoga. My mom had friends from college there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I lived there from when I was 8 to I was 18. Lived in Albany for a year uh, and then moved here. So one of the um, ongoing questions we have here is uh, first skateboard. Do you remember it? Yeah. I had a, a Santa Cruz jammer. Santa Cruz made their like bargain basement, like Nash equivalent. Yeah. But it was actually like way nicer than a, than a you know department it store had like toy the store board. street right had a one color graphic that just said jammer and it had uh, barbed wire on the bottom i wrote it so fucking long uh my mom's dad was a woodworker uh-huh i wrote it so long that it you know i got it used off this dude with some birthday money had some giant uh ojs and some fucking independent trucks and it was you know i think i paid eight bucks for it or something incredible wow uh and yeah it blew apart and my grandfather who was a woodworker like redid it every time it get like chunks out of it or whatever. And he got frustrated with grip tape, and so he just started buying different grades of sandpaper and cutting it custom to fit. I mean, like, you know, he was a woodworker. It became like a project, so he just kind of fixed it and fixed it and fixed it. And I, by then I'd saved up enough money to go to a store and buy a board. Uh-huh. And I was really little. And for some reason in my like mind that hadn't figured out the sport yet, I thought a Rodney Mullen would be cool because I was like real small. What I didn't realize is it was for like, you got the freestyle yeah. board? and then like showed up at the jump ramp and everybody was just like, you're a fucking moron. Like you, the one board you saved up to buy. And so I went back to the Santa Cruz jammer because I felt like everybody was making fun of me. Right. Uh, but yeah, did that you was like first two boards. It was a long answer. Did you ever uh, hi- uh, sneak in a freestyle trick? No. At that age, I could barely, like I was just learning to push down the street. You didn't go pogo ever? No. Nah, I mean, eventually I think <laughs> I pogoed, but not at that particular time. Like I said, I was just learning how to like, push down the street do a kick turn on the jump ramp when i wasn't getting in anybody's way you know who do you give most of your hereditary uh credit for your artistic abilities my mom's dad the dude i was just talking about that's what i was wondering yeah the uh, woodworker yep my mom's last name was diagostino uh-huh and her grandfather came here from italy to be a tailor in new york city and he was the personal tailor for teddy roosevelt while he was in office Fuck. and he made the suit that he was married in and also a suit that he was buried in and uh his son my grandfather nick diagostino uh, was a master woodworker and uh also wore a shitload of brown mm-hmm. and i've always kind of assumed that the only reason there's i mean there wasn't anybody else in the whole entire family tree that made their living with their hands other than uh my grandfather and his dad 
His uncle actually came out to LA to work in film. He was an art director for RKO Pictures for a lot of those like wet, like kind of spaghetti western sort of movies. Nice. Uh, and my grandfather worked for him for a little while, like painting sets. He could also paint my grandfather, but it wasn't. He went to Cooper Union for a little while uh -huh. in New York. So he had kind of like an artistic background. And I think everyone in my whole family tree is like, that's definitely the guy you got this from because yeah. there's nobody else around that, you know, used their hands to make a living. Right. So when you were back there, you were drawn to San Francisco to come to the art school or what, what, what drew you to this town? Hills. This, I'm not saying this because he recently passed away, but like the shit Jake wrote in Thrasher about San Francisco, like the way the magazine made the city look. Uh huh. I think, and not, to, I, I would guarantee that if you talk to anybody my age that read it in those years, no matter where you lived, you just kind of thought this was the Mecca because of the way the magazine positioned it. All those shots of like fucking huge hills, like one after the other. Yeah. Tommy's video parts. Yeah. You know what I mean? It just made it look like it was a fucking giant skate park, kind of. Right. And I was really into bombing hills, but there weren't a lot of them where I grew up. Albany had some really good hill runs, and I think that's where I got into it. We'd all try and pretend we were Tommy Guerrero, you know? And like, not really, but that's kind of what it looked like. These big sweeping hills sure. with some driveway drop-offs and shit in downtown Albany. Yeah. And so I think uh, when I got into art school, I got into one in New York. I got into one in Boston, and I got into the one here. Uh, the school was really cool. It was a very progressive school. It had Barry McGee on the cover of the catalog, all that. Oh. And, and again, another side of what was really attractive here in the 90s. Like, there was a cool art scene here. Right. Um, but definitely, definitely, definitely came here because Thrasher painted it to be this, like, paradise. And it was. In 1994, this was like, and you'll forgive me if this is in some other skateboardy podcast, but like, man, I woke up the morning after I got here and they were, Ethan Fowler was like shooting an ad in the alley across the street from where I was sleeping, you know? <laughs> yeah. And it was one of those ones where you're like, is this real? Right. You know, like a few days later we went to Fort Miley and it was like Coco and fucking Julian and Tommy. I'm like, holy shit, <laughs> the magazine is real. Like, it's not, yeah. you know, like you could just go to these places and there's yeah. those dudes. I met Danny Sargent at the Safeway Curbs, like. It was, I was gonna say you see Sergeant at the bar at night or somebody like yeah. yeah it was like these guys are out and it's and not dicks either which was the even crazier part you know mm. like just because they were that famous to us and like we held them on that kind of pedestal you would just expect them all to be kind of assholes and uh, I can't say honestly anyone that I met back then like any of the pro skateboarders that were like super famous here uh, they were all just super warm and normal and nice and like welcomed you again it wasn't I can't say 94 there was like millions of guys moving here. There certainly wasn't a housing crunch like there is now. There was no, it wasn't like if more skateboarders moved here, you'd feel like, oh, our spots are going to get knobbed because that wasn't happening yet. Right. It was just a wonderful time to come here and I felt like there was a real welcoming element to it. Yep. Because uh, I made more friends in the city at that time through skating than I did through art school. And I think a lot of it was everybody was just cool as fuck. And me and my friends weren't incredible either, you know? We were out just basically out here, too old to try and make a go for it, but just enjoying like that time in our lives, you know? That time was, we're never going to have that time again. <laughs> and we're fortunate Actually, to have been there. You and I won't, because we're old as shit, but I do think like uh, with the GX dudes and like like that type of skating, that I, I was really drawn to hills when I moved here. It was like oh, yeah. part of what my friends and I did the most. Like on the weekends, we'd go out to the avenues and just you know, bomb down to the beach and take the train back and go over to the Richmond and take the ones from Fort Miley. And obviously on a fucking thousands and thousands and thousands of times more gnarly, I love to see all the footage of those dudes like celebrating the actual natural. And, you know, not that there's anything wrong with just skating spots, but to see these guys taking what I was really fascinated with 25 years ago onto this just fucking steroid level of gnarly. Yeah. Uh, a few summers ago, I was working up at Coit Tower and 
uh, when I'd walk back and forth, I was seeing them all over the neighborhood up in there, and I was like, who the fuck skates in Telegraph Hill? You know, like, everything's straight down back into North Beach. Right. And it was before I'd seen any of those videos. I just knew those dudes from, like, seeing them at Golden Boy and, like, yeah. seeing them up in these obscure parts of my neighborhood. And it wasn't until, like, maybe a year later that Matt D started sending me footage, and I was like, oh, my God, like, look at these fucking dudes. So I do think, to your point, like, we'll never have the... Those guys are sacrificing so much more to be here, you know? Like, how do you come here just to skate? It costs, like, fucking three grand for an apartment. Um, so I really actually, I'll say not only did it come back around, but the young kids that are after it right now, you dudes are fucking working way harder than we had to, like, just to fucking be able to afford to live here to film that kind of stuff. Yeah, or living, like, in worse conditions, probably putting five dudes in a room or yeah. something. Yeah. I met these girls recently that told me, like, like it's kind of like a thing, like, young skater dudes will, like, shack up with chicks just in order to find a place to crash long term, and not that that hasn't been going on forever, but she was just saying nowadays it's, like, super aggressive. Like, skateboard dudes will literally try and move into your house after, like, hanging out once, you know? Tinder. You, yeah. you have an extra you have room a, in your bed for me? How's your couch? How are your roommates? No, I was really, I actually, while she was telling this story, somehow I was, like, really proud. And I, not for any reason, but I was just like, yeah, way to go, skateboarders. Like, way to continue to find nooks to crash in in San Francisco so you can continue to film these fucking gnarly parts. Like, It's true. I find it to be heartwarming. What were some of, like, when you were younger, what were the artists out there that were doing it that you looked up to? Like, when I first started drawing more aggressively, like high school probably, Jim uh -huh. Phillips. Jim like, Phillips, straight in hand. Uh, yeah. Santa Cruz at that time was almost, like, bulletproof, you know what I mean? Like, they had been around forever. Mm-hmm. The wood was always really good. The graphics were always incredible. Mm. It come packaged and with like all this shit inside the shrink wrap, like way before anybody did that. You know, they had good videos. Yeah, they had good everything. Yeah. Like it was one of those companies where it didn't it didn't like have this giant jump and then this shrink back down like Powell did. It just was like consistently sick. Even though I liked VCJ's graphics and thought he they were technically perfect, mm -hmm. I thought Jim Phillips' shit was like funnier. You know, and like Powell's stuff was always super serious. Uh, I really loved Neil Blender's drawings because he skated, and I like yeah. Mark's drawings because he skated, and I like that side of things. But like dudes that skated did their own art was really attractive long before that was a thing to me. But I would say earliest influence would be Jim Phillips. Okay. Directly. True or false, you uh, were once an old school rapper. Mm, I definitely had a couple of rap groups when I was young, like really young, uh, but they were terrible. <laughs> and I was not good at it, but... Uh, you know, I was born in upstate New York in the mid-70s and only ever listened to rap music pretty much my whole life. Other than like, you know, like Dinosaur Jr. or somebody that had a song in a skateboard video would sure. be the, the only exception to music I would own. Like in my cassette collection, it was like 90% really angry rap music from the 80s and 90s. Uh, and then like I'd sneak in a, an odd skate video related jam. Were you Beastie Boys? Definitely. Uh, Matt D said that you guys had like a little uh, tape that never resurfaced. But yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, in the fourth or fifth grade, we like right at the end of the school year, we started, we had, I mean, we were working on it. We had like a rap album that we were making, the two of us, and uh, we, we pre-sold copies. <laughs> like, <laughs> like we sold copies of a tape to a bunch of kids like right at the end of the school year. Yeah. And just never produced it, never refunded, just... By the next school year, we were just like, oh, yeah, it's coming. Right. Whatever. Somehow that's got a resurface. They were really bad. <laughs> I, I think we only recorded one song. You know, it didn't go a whole lot for, further uh -huh. than that. But uh, Damn. Did, was Kenny Reed of the same era? He grew up yeah. in that era? Yeah. Area? He's, um, 
He's from like 45 minutes south of me, closer to Albany. Okay. He grew up in a, in a town called Niverville. That motherfucker had a dirt road in front of his house that he used to fucking like, you know, go out there and like, I remember picking him up in a car and mm-hmm. seeing him doing flat ground tricks on this like, you know, I mean, it was, it was matted down. It wasn't like a dusty dirt road, but it was sure. like this, I don't know, ever since I met him, he was always like 45 or 50 steps ahead of anybody around him. Like he's just like naturally born to do it, kind of. He got sponsored by Dogtown when his board, like when he'd hold it, it came up to his shoulder. You know what I mean? Like he was so little when he got on Dogtown. I don't know. He's like 12 or 13, I think. Uh huh. But again, even at that age, he was like just incredible. And it was like a good a dude as he is, talented. You know, like. Right. What do you think pushed him to travel so much? Like he became the, his nickname was the Traveler. I and think because he grew up on a dirt road. <laughs> like, I always thought that like, you know. I mean, just coming out here and turning pro, like, you know how many people turn pro from upstate New York? It's like a pretty short fucking list. And I would probably say just in terms of longevity and like how long he was pro for, I think the reason he traveled so much is because you should see where he's from. And I think to go from that to here and then from here to go on all these tours around the world and as his career grew and he's just like, fuck this. I mean, I'm going to use this as an excuse to see the world. And that's not something I ever heard come out of his mouth. I just, just, at that period, I never saw him. There was, like, a chunk of time where I didn't see him at all. Were you guys friends back there? Yeah, yeah. We were uh, friends when we were kids. I mean, not best friends, but we, right. like, you know, skated together and hung out at the same people's houses. And uh-huh. there wasn't, I mean, that scene was probably 40 dudes total at that time, you know? Yep. Uh, and we all knew each other. Ah, oh, sick. Then you came out to San Francisco, but you, your first job was not Think. No, no. I came here to go to college. Uh-huh. And so, you know, I worked college jobs. I worked at Copeland's on Market Street. I worked uh, as a janitor at my school at the Art Institute. Yeah. Um, yeah, I had a bunch of shitty jobs. And then how did you meet, uh, F- who was it, Fausto or no, Keith? No, Dustin, or? the dude that I ran the print shop with, Dustin Lindgren. Oh, yeah. Uh, I know Dustin. Dustin and Coons and like that whole group of dudes. I met skating in the mission. I worked at a wallpaper company when I was in college. You met Coons that long ago? Out in the streets, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, Coons moved here from Utah with Dustin and this guy Clint. And, you know, they just literally, Dustin lived like half a block from me when I was in college and I just met him skating. And then I was working at a wallpaper company and I came out of work. I used to ride around on this really funny like Sims Pure Juice Uh when I'd go to and from work. And uh, I bumped into those guys numerous times and I'd have on like coveralls covered in ink. And I was riding this weird board, and like, I don't know, we just kind of became friends from like meeting up in random places. And then, yeah, forgive me if I've told this part of the story before, but Dustin, his boss quit like the month I graduated from college. Dustin was the assistant manager at Print Time, the place that prints all the shit for deluxe high speed think. You know, it was mostly at that time we were printing a shitload of Thrasher t shirts yeah. and printing skateboards. And, you know, I went to school for screen printing, it was like what I wanted to do. Like I said, I was screen printing at a wallpaper company when I met Dustin, so he knew it was something I was into. And when his fucking boss quit, they handed him the reins of his company, and he was like 24 or 25 years old. And he was like, fuck. So he hired me immediately to take his job as the assistant, and that changed my life forever. Like, I I had taken out all these loans. I'd come all the way out here. I mostly went skating more so. I got good grades, but I just, like, you know, I was more into skating at that age than art and art school. So the fact that I graduated with this nearly worthless degree in screen printing from a fine art school, which, how many fucking jobs were there in the city limits that I could go with that piece of paper and get a job? Unbelievable. And Dustin just kicked a door open where, like, I not only got a job that was, like, related to my major in college, it was related to the thing I was doing out here. And I just... That was 94? 
97. So when 90. I finished school. Yeah. Oh, okay. So we met in like 98 or 99 maybe? Yeah. Okay. I didn't leave the print shop for a while. And then, like, you know, it was just a fucking hard job. I was there really long hours. But eventually, uh, I got to be the guy that would take, you know, samples to high speed for people to look at and, like, meet with the... Like, I kind of became the go-between, like, between the guys at Deluxe when they wanted to see stuff. Like, I worked really close with Jeff Clint. Oh. uh, And eventually Jim and, you know, all the guys that make big decisions over at Deluxe about this Spitfire color or, you know, things like that. Little fine details about how they printed their shit. But you can imagine at that age, like, how fucking exciting that was because it was, like... What I'd always wanted to do, the artists that were working in both the art departments at that time, both the guys at Think and at at Deluxe, and even some of the guys at High Speed, were so fucking incredible at what they did that it was just like, it was like graduate school. Who was at Think then? Was that Mike Giner? No, it was uh, Jason Noto and Doug Cunningham who ran Morning Breath. Okay. Mike had been there just before they were. Right. Um, And yeah, like there were flat files, endless flat files full of Mike's shit. And even when I was still at the print shop, just like, you know hundreds of his board graphics that I could flip through and see how he separated this or that or how he you know what colors he chose to Mike's colorblind too so wow. all of his colors for a lot of that thing stuff were primary colors and I didn't know until I worked there why uh. if, you know when you go in deluxe back then the thing stuff really stood out because it'd be like straight red like blue yellow and I was always like why the fuck is this dude like his line art's incredible but his colors are just so bold and like you think little- that's why a lot of it's black and white now no, I mean, he uses color still, but I, I do think his black and white stuff is incredibly strong because, you know, it's what's driving his work. I and I don't know if that's an influence from graffiti or if it's an influence from board graphics and t-shirts. Whatever it is, it's something I latched onto right away. Like, the minute I got here. Right. I just wanted to draw better. Because, like, his illustrations screen printed incredibly well. They have giant, thick black lines to trap the colors underneath it. And uh, same with Todd. And that's why, to this day, I still kind of credit both those dudes as, like, Doug, too, actually, Doug Cunningham from uh, Morning Breath, just because all those guys drew with this big, heavy, thick black line, and I wanted to do that, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, if you look at my stuff from art school, it's not really, doesn't look like the stuff I do now, and a lot of that is because I, you know, I think working at print time was grad school. To be able to look through those guys' artwork, and it was my job to make sure it all printed well and lined up cool and the colors were exactly what they wanted, it was a dream come true. And, like... Yeah, what an opportunity. Yeah, and, like, not anything I would have ever imagined doing and, like, definitely, without question, shaped the artwork I make now. That's so sick. Yeah, wow. I was lucky. And I owe Dustin and so Keith and all those guys process. infinitely. Do you remember the day that you you started working at Pink? Like, how that happened? Yeah. So I started to get little art jobs. Like, KT let me do a t-shirt for Thrasher. No way. Yeah, that was my, that was my go-to. At, that uh, was your first kind of... What was that one? Uh, it's a little cityscape that's on fire with a lot of hills wrapping around it again it looks way different than my stuff does now Uh but it was out for a minute and they let me that was during the height of the screen or the sleeve print craze you remember when spitfire had like 40 heads that went up the sleeve and thrasher had like a t that was on fire uh on the front was like a little like a like a little cityscape of hills and uh on the sleeve was a wheel like a melting wheel with flames coming up off it. Oh, okay. So they did, they did long sleeve versions of it. I it think I've seen that because yeah. we've been pulling out a lot of the old graphics lately. Yeah, I was talking to Freddie the other day and he said, like, he was like, oh, you know, somebody was saying something about having you do a shirt. And I was like, man, I would fucking do a modern version of that. Just because the hills are popular again. Yeah. You know? Like, uh, it's funny, like, retrospect, 25 years later, like, that shirt actually still makes sense. Right. But yeah, I did that. And then Juxtapose let me do a poster. Like, before I'd ever even been in their magazine, no I had way. a poster in the back of their mail order. 
And Think was starting to let me do like a little thing. I did a Jesse Piaz board. It was the first board I ever drew. Like oh. the first board that ever got made. Sick. With my art on it. Uh-huh. Um, was that uh, just a unique graphic or part of a series? No, it was just, they weren't, I wasn't good enough at that point that they were going to get, and there were still full-time dudes. Uh, Chris Cycle was still working there full-time. Cycle. Yeah, like there was a... <laughs> Shout out. Uh, there was a bunch of guys still working there, so they didn't need, you know, Chris was up to his fucking neck in graphics, so every once in a while, me too. I love him. <laughs> I love him to death, and I owe him. Like if he hadn't ever left and moved back to New York, I don't know that I would have gotten the job. Part of the reason I got hired, I think, is because he had to bounce, and... Uh, when he did, they were fucking. They didn't. They weren't ready, yeah. and so they didn't have anybody there to do it. Uh -huh. And part of the reason they gave me the job is just like, well, he's not very good, but like he at least knows how the stuff's supposed to print. And then they figured I'd get better at it, and I did. I worked with somebody that taught me how to use a computer, which at that stage I didn't. You know, it's like now we're talking like ninety nine, two thousand. Yep. Uh, I didn't fucking know how to use. A, I didn't know any art programs. I'd never had any experience with it, so. Um, yeah, I just walked in there, and this guy Martin Walker, that Swiss dude that used to work there, oh yeah, Martin, yeah, uh, he kind of taught me how to use the computer, and like how to work with fonts and like layout text and shit that I just didn't know how to do. Was that the dude that made? Because back then I was doing that was when I first was learning my shit, and one of the guys, I don't know if it was Martin, but he taught me animated. He did a little animation with graphics, and at that time no one was doing it. I feel like it was either him or this guy Lee Eshelman who it was also Lee. worked there at the it same time. It was Lee for sure. Because Lee, uh, Lee was a quiet, a quiet killer. Mm -hmm. He was like incredibly talented, but just didn't talk a lot. Yeah. And he was a fantastic drinker because when he drank, he would talk a lot. Oh. One of those guys that like you know. Yeah. A few I beers later, it was like dudes. a whole different dude. Yeah. <laughs> He's a really nice guy. So, did you have any type of interview, or was it just like, hey, you're coming over here now? You know, to be fair, I went in there out of college before I worked with Dustin and tried to get a job. Like, I went in there with a portfolio, oh. and uh, I knew Don Fisher. He was my team manager when I was like a young-ass dude. I got flowed from Vision, and he worked there. And yeah. I think probably just because our last names are similar, yeah. and Fish is what you know everybody calls him. Uh -huh. um, so I went in and tried to get a job there way before I worked it, like right as I got out of college and got turned down. I wasn't, I didn't have the portfolio to get that job. Right. I think it would have been just after Mike Giant or just in the middle of uh, Morning Breath. And there's no way I was going to get hired while those guys were already there doing the job really well. So no, there wasn't an interview. By the time I got pulled out of the print shop, it was a little bit more like they just had to fill the spot and. No one else, I don't think, was that excited about it, but Keith. Keith knew I could figure it out, and Fausto probably too a little bit at that time. I feel like they're so good at just, like, giving you an opportunity. Like, Even if you're not good enough. Yeah, and if you're I, like, I mean, if they're like, you can't do this, you're fired. <laughs> or you did it, congratulations, we're not giving you a raise. You know what I mean? And they can start you out, and I don't say this with any disrespect, there's not a lot of money rolling around in there. Yeah. Uh, they can start you out at a really low pay scale because you weren't qualified to do that job anyway. Yeah, you know? and everybody wants to yeah. do it. The job I got with Dustin, I was qualified to do, and I did the best I could. When yeah. I got the job in the art department, I mean, I just took an art director job and didn't have any right or reason to be doing that. I was, like, half as talented as every guy that had worn that hat before me. Yeah. But, you know, when I started, there was six guys in that room. When I quit, I was the last guy. Like, I walked out of there, and there was... You know, very few people still working on Think in the building. So, you know, it was a crazy up and down time for those dudes. That's how I started. Uh, Zooch called me one night and he's like, hey, you want to make the next Thrasher video? And I was like, what? And he's like, Fausto's looking for a guy. And I was like, and I'm that guy? I'm like, no, wait, what? And he's like, we just got to upgrade your computer. We can do this. I had no experience, nothing. I filmed, 
I'd, I'd edited VCR to VCR. I'd never <laughs> used a computer. And Safa was like halfway done filming. Dude, Safa came in. What year is this? 97 That was uh, Thrasher video number eight. It was called Raw. Yeah. I Hell yeah. I don't know what year it was. I feel like it was probably 90. Well, Phil died in 98. So it had to be like 96, maybe. 95, maybe. I'm not sure. But we gave Safa. Safa had a, not a nervous breakdown, but like pretty much like he broke out in hives from stress had to go to the hospital because he came into my house and saw what he had to deal with to edit this video and zooch is just like nah we got this you know like zooch was a lot like p-stone he was just like we got this even if we didn't have it it was like he could he's a used car salesman like yeah we, we're gonna do this and fucking somehow we pulled it off i mean if you look at that video you can see the rendering and like a lot of transitions that are just glitch city and all that shit that was us just being like i think this will fly and then of course it was called ross so it made it kind of make sense you know? where's the sava talking schmidt we need that one i just saw him for the yeah. first time in a really long time he still lives here and he might be in seemed like he was doing really good yeah i talked uh, to him. i think he lives in the richmond richmond actually okay. i don't know why i say that that's just where i ran into him yeah big props to Safa. shout he out he taught me so much and Although he did break out with the, like, we stressed him out. He did handle he it. He was patient with us. Yeah. And, like, he could have just been, no, these guys are clowns. What are you doing? He was right in the middle of the toy machine video at that time, Welcome to Hell, which Muska was supposed to be in, like, that big fucking video. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was telling me, like, dude, all this shit's going down. Like, so he was dealing with that and our fucking circus, which was night and day dealing wow. with Jamie Thomas dealing with us. What a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't disrespect Way him to go by Samba. saying that. Yeah, he's the best. He's so rad. Me and Strooping always go, I don't know, Strooping, you know, Sapa. I mean, that's kind of, kind of weird. Oh, that's pretty good. So, yeah, that's my uh, Sapa. I request an interview. Yeah, we'll I'd get like that to hear one. that. You mentioned brown earlier through the family. You wear a lot of brown. Is, is that where it starts? Uh, my grandfather's whole like life was kind of brown. He like smoked a pipe and had racks of them in his house. He was like a an avid fisherman who at some point was like the president of Trout Unlimited in upstate New York. And like, yeah, he was a woodworker whose whole studio was brown. Not just wood, but like, I don't know. It was just his color and his wardrobe, you know? And so he died, mm, fuck, 20 years ago probably. Oh, shit. Uh, and I was really close to him at that time in my life. And just like, I don't know, I started to just kind of adopt his look, I think. Partially because I figured I got most of what I'm doing from him. Mm -hmm. uh, and partially just because I liked the way he dressed. I don't know, I liked his style. Yeah. And it started out like, you know, just wearing anything that's even related to brown. And then it got to be one of those things where like I got really anal about it. And it had to be the right shade of brown. But yeah, I think part of it's just like, a, you can get dressed in the dark and everything kind of goes together but <laughs> more importantly it's like i don't you know i got a brown cat like my apartment's brown i won't drive a car or a scooter or anything that isn't like i don't know it became kind of obsessive and like i don't exactly know why it's continued to go that way but i don't know there's just something about the color and the palette and most of the things in my life wind up being sort of brown and it's easier to amass things in your life if you have like some rules you know sure. you're not just randomly if somebody goes to give me a shirt and it's blue, I'm like, oh man, I appreciate it, but I'm never gonna wear that. Uh -huh. And normally, you know, somebody would be deeply offended they're trying to give you the shirt with their art or their company or whatever's on it. Right. But they take a look at me and they're like, oh yeah, he wouldn't wear that, you know? 
so it cuts down on like random shit you don't need you know when That's you go to buy something if you're like they don't make it in brown nah, i probably didn't need one you know yeah did you grow up like through your life have you been kind of a hoarder or do you not hold on to things shoes i would say even when i was younger like when i was little like before skating tons of shoes yeah i hoard shoes and i don't even know quite why my mom kind of did when i was a kid uh-huh. she's pretty weird about shoes yeah but uh I always assume it was from skating, you know? Like, I always wanted my skate shoes to be, like, partially because where I grew up, the weather's fucking gnarly. Yeah. And so we used to always put our sneakers in a bag and, like, wear boots to the skate spot. Right. And then, like, switch and skate for a while and then throw them back in the bag to take them with you because you don't want to fucking hike there in snow and, like, get to the spot and have wet feet. That reminds me of my favorite uh, quote. One of my favorite quotes is uh, Caballero. He's like, somebody calls him out for wearing, like, Doc Martens. He's like... If we were skating, I'd be wearing skate shoes. <laughs> <laughs> They're like chilling in a restaurant. Not to mention, but he should yell at somebody and be like, let me know the next time you have a fucking skate shoe that runs for a quarter of a century, yeah. you fucking dickhead. <laughs> I can wear whatever shoes I want. Like, do you hold on to your boards that you've made? Like, you have like a big collection of like yeah. all this stuff through the years? I have like 400 boards under my house. No That's way. a combination of every board I did at Think and every other company at this point. Because like once I stopped working at Think, I got a lot of other board companies. Sure. But yeah, one of everything I've made, and then probably the best stuff in that collection is really random shit from the print shop, shit that no one has. It'll be like a, a fucking Cardiel that's missing three colors, or a Cardiel that's just sprayed one color with the line art on it, stuff that like I'd imagine board collectors would probably pay an enormous amount of money for. Uh, I have like the test print decks. We all, me and Dustin and Dwayne each got kept one that's like back when boards were printed directly and there wasn't a heat transfer say the screen started to get clogged and you have to print it clear like yeah. to get the clog out there were test print boards so there'd be like three colors from a cardiel and like the fucking you know line art from some random tim mckenney thing and like all on one board and those to me are like precious because no like when way. i look at it i'm just like oh man that job was so crazy at the tail end of like the actual printed board yeah i worked there as, as a matter of fact i worked with jeff clint like as we got the equipment to do heat transfers like as the technology first I remember being at the trade show uh, at some ASR at some point. I don't remember what year. Yeah. Like, as people were rolling out the idea of heat transfers and how much easier and, like, it opened up to be able to do photographs and, like, all these things that you'd never been able to print on a skateboard because it had to be screen printable over two curves, you know, and that limited the amount of crazy stuff you could put on a board. Once it went to being heat transfer, like, screen printing on a thin plastic carrier for the audience, and then they'd use, like, rollers and heat to transfer it from the carrier onto the board. Because you can print really complicated shit flat. You can't print really complicated shit over a concave piece of wood with two bends. Right. And the amount of crazy shit and the you know resolution you could use just really changed once you could use heat transfers. McKenney, actually, speaking of Tim, shout out to Tim McKenney. Shout out. He was mentioning that his last board graphic actually never came out. And you did it. And he's got the print of it. And it's like, the story is... Uh, American woman, stay away from me. And he was dealing with woman problems there. And he's like, dude, I need to remake this graphic somehow. I loved working there. Uh, Dan was probably like my favorite skateboarder. Uh, like, yeah, just because, I don't know, he's like one of the best that ever lived, in my opinion. And uh, like, he could, like, I loved his little company and I loved his drawings, but I wasn't very close with him. Yeah. Like, I don't know him super good. Uh, uh, Tim, I got to know. And he's like, easily out of all the dudes that rode for them back in the day he's the funniest dude yeah like, he's the kind of guy like when he came in which wasn't all the time i would get stoked like i would stop what i was doing and just he was a maniac like, uh. he's 
he ripped. I love the way he skated, but more importantly, he's just funny. Like, he's a funny man. Absolutely. Uh, and so, yeah, like, I remember that. I also, he's the only guy who ever had a board come out where I spelled his name wrong. <laughs> no way. Yeah. What was it, McCanny? I don't something? remember how I spelled it. Maybe I left yeah. a letter out or something, but. That happened uh, a lot. I think but again, that... anybody else would have been super bent, and he thought it was funny. Like, I don't know. It says a lot about him, you know what I mean? He like, just wasn't that kind of guy back then. Didn't give a shit about it. True or false, the Think graphic you did called Piss Pants was their best-selling board ever. False. <laughs> that was when I was getting warmed up. <laughs> and that's when Keith was really letting me do what I wanted, because if Jesse Piaz did good, I think I'd done one or two other boards, yeah. and they had done okay. This is when I wasn't working there in-house. I was doing them like at night when I'd get home from work. Right. Um, but because it was that, at that point, that was the opportunity. That's what I'd always wanted to do. Like from high school on, I wanted to do board graphics. I just wasn't good enough. And so I kind of like, you know, I snuck in through the back door and he was letting me do a few here and there. And I don't have any idea why I thought that was a good idea. I like to draw cityscapes with hills. You know, like the Thrasher t-shirt. It was like what I was drawing at that point because I was bombing mm. hills like a motherfucker. That was what I, after work and on the weekends, that was like what I was up to. Yeah. And uh, I drew this one where it's like a cityscape with some hills going down and the city's wearing a diaper on the bottom. <laughs> and there was like a stain in the diaper <laughs> and a little like drip of piss coming out of the bottom. As if to say like... The city is so filthy that it like needs a diaper to contain the fucking scum, which it did. Which not it really matter. a board graphic anybody wants. It's not like a kid's not going to walk into a skate shop and be like, you know, the city does need a diaper. I'm going to fucking buy that and go skate. Like, it's just, it was a dumb idea. Do you think that was the same era that you did that Holmes? When I first met you, you gave me a print of this thing. I think it's called Holmes. Yeah. And it's a, it's a basically a bathroom print with the diaper guy sitting on the toilet, yeah. maybe. Similar. Yeah. I think, what was, was that, like 98 in Somewhere the late in there, 90s? Six, seven, yeah. eight. Yeah, like right when I, like I said, when I got out of art school, my stuff was way different. Yeah. And pretty shitty. It was. I mean, I, you know, I didn't have any graphic arts background. I didn't go to school for illustration. Uh -huh. So trying to do skateboard graphics when your entire education was like fine art, like make art for, you know, galleries, museums, that kind of audience. Yeah. I just should have gone to school for illustration. Like I kind of just took the wrong thing to get to where I wanted to go. But that's why I said like Dustin, Fausto and Eric put me in that print shop. And it was like just to see these guys who all drew really symmetrically and everything was perfect and finished. It's just like, you know, something I'd never considered. So sure. What were those days like working with like Keith, Greg, and Don? Did you ever see Keith talked about losing it, like and throwing a fax machine from the top shelf? Did you any, ever see what were some wild antics? I like, I know those guys would come in like either hungover or uh, ecstasied over on Mondays and just ran. I didn't see any of that. I huh. think by the time I started working there, those guys had not to say that they weren't raising hell. Yeah. Um, mellowed out a little. I think they had mellowed out a little bit. I think the dance club era and all that for those dudes was way before I worked there. Keith had little Keith by the time I worked there, and you know, he was trying to be a dad and like hold it down. He was still partying, and like all those guys would, if they went to ASR, if they went somewhere for work, they would raise hell. Mm -hmm. But I never saw that side of him. Like, mm. For whatever reason, I always just really got along with that dude. Like, from the minute I started working at print time, yeah, I don't know. He was always just anything I ever wanted, he would get it, you know? And Fausto, too. Like, to be fair, Fausto gets this reputation. And he did yell at me. And he did make fun of me. And he did get pissed off about stuff, but he was good to me, you know? Yeah. Like, really good to me. Uh, yeah. Both those dudes. Same. Actually, all of them. All the dudes in that Northern California empire where everybody's like, oh, that dude's gnarly. He's a dick. Like, Phelps, too. Like... I just got off easy. All those people were so fucking nice to me and so, I don't know, just changed I mean, my whole deal, you know? I've always had the perspective that I think they really appreciate dedication 
and that if you're a hundred percent down for what they're doing, they're not a dick to you. No, they're and a dick to the people that they see. Kind of, a lot of times they're calling you out because you need to be called out. Definitely. And let's know? face it, we both met. I'm going to say 50 dudes in the last 25 years that like really wanted to work in the skateboard industry right up until they did. And then they realize that it doesn't pay. It's really hard. And you actually really have to give a fuck or don't be there. Yeah. And I think that I gave so much of a fuck. Like, it was what I'd always wanted to do. Yeah. And especially, like, if you're not good enough to do that and you eventually sneak in and get the job, man, I was going to go down swinging. Like, I really wanted to do it. Yeah. And I was going to try, I mean, piss pants being a poor example, but, like, I was still trying. I drew that at night. Like, after my fucking eight-hour shift, I went home and drew that in my apartment and separated it and brought it back in as if like oh yeah this is from think like you know what i mean like i and i'm sure you're right like i imagine probably the reason all those guys went easy on me is maybe the stuff i was drawing wasn't that rad maybe it didn't sell that great but there was no question that i was like trying so fucking hard to like do a good job you're there all day and then you're probably there past or you go home and work on shit definitely and they're like you know they appreciate that and i was still skating a lot at that age with all those people and that matters too yeah yeah yeah. steven said to ask you what your graphic you were least stoked on is that the piss pants one then i feel like mike's probably asking about something specific yeah i don't know i don't know if i have a least favorite i didn't like there was a time where element was super big the guy that owns element is from fucking albany so oh no johnny shoreff like grew up he stayed over my house when I was a kid, you know? That like, makes sense. Uh, Remember you did that fishing one. Yeah, because the guy who owned the fucking company and I have known each other since we were young, and he was really supportive of me, like, because I didn't, you know, I didn't get, I didn't do this by anybody, like, connections through him. Right. So I think uh, I had a really hard, if I had to pick one thing that was my least favorite to Steven's question, I had to do a lot of stuff that looked like they'd be like, oh, Element's really cracking, you know, like, try to make this next board series look like that. Not like copy them, but make it more simple, big flat shapes of color. You remember that stuff? Yeah. It was real first stuff that, and credit to Johnny and the art dudes at Element at that time. Mm-hmm. It was different. Yeah. People doing it. And so I did a lot of series that looked like that and they were fucking awful. Mm. And when I think about like, you know, you were like, do you have a collection of boards? Those are the ones I really hate because I really <laughs> had no business making them. I had no background in graphic design. And they're just like, when you look at them, they're just terrible. I work with this skateboard museum in Germany who I've been friends with for like 15 years. And uh, I think I'm going to donate the entire collection. I've been in my apartment for like 14 years, and the entire board collection sits in this storage under my house. And I'm actually trying to figure out a way to get them shipped to Germany. Because in the 15 years that I've known these guys, they grew from just like this tiny little museum to these guys. They're going all... I mean, I just went to China with them uh, to do a show in a museum with fucking Andy Howell and Tony Alva. I went skating for the first time all year in a fucking museum in a basement with Tony Alva at like 10 o'clock in the morning. Wow. I went down there to take pictures of my shit that was like painted to be in this show. And like I wanted, they had, you know, removed all the tarps and it was ready for the opening. Yeah. So I tried to sneak in early before anybody was there to like take pictures. I go in there and fucking Tony Alva's is skating by himself. And I was like, this is fucking insane. These guys built like a concrete dragon. This guy Lilo uh, from Vienna made this incredible, the theme was the dragon. And he built a fucking concrete dragon in the museum that was like a pump track, like you could ride around on it. Sick. Yeah. And I mean, it was just- I a, love pump tracks. I do too, but this was just <laughs> abstract. It was one of those things where I went in and I, it had turned out really good and I was just taking pictures and there's like one of the most legendary dudes of all time at like 60 years old or whatever, just, just fucking shredding by himself. Yeah. And I was like, man, what the fuck? Like, when's this ever gonna happen again? 
Those are the days. Yeah, but it was uh, the guys from the Skateboard Museum and my, my friend Jurgen uh, that set up the whole thing. And it's just one of those, like, as I think about turning that collection over to those guys, it's the, like, stuff that looks like I was trying to make it look like Element. It's probably my least favorite shit in the whole deal. Either that or piss pants, just because those guys make fun of me for it. Yeah, just for you, Steve. Is there one that sticks out as, like, kind of up there as a favorite? The Jesse Pias, the first one I did, just because, like... That was it. At that point, I could have never done another one, and I was like, I did it, you know, like... Right. I moved out here to, like, Bomb Hills and make board graphics if anybody would let me. Uh-huh. And so, well, the first one I made, I was just like, fuck, that's a wrap. I don't care if I get to go any... Fr-. And I made it from the print shop, you know what I mean? Like... Yeah. I was getting to do art for all these things I loved, and I had another job. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I was really proud of it. And Jesse was cool to me about it, and even though it had nothing to do with him, it was just, like, a big pink bunny... I couldn't believe those guys let me put that on a skateboard either because they all made fun of our gang constantly. Yeah. Which I, you know, I liked. It's to be made fun of. It's not like a serious gang, you know? Well, speaking of that, Dan Drahobel did have a question for you. Fucking awesome. It's appropriate to ask it right now. What the fuck is a silly pink bunny? It's like made up. When I was in high school, and anybody who's listening to this has definitely heard this story before, so forgive me, audience who gives a rat's ass. A newspaper article in my hometown when we were kids came out, and it was just to scare old people. Uh-huh. The Saratogian had this article uh, that said, like, gang activity in Saratoga is, like, out of control. And they're like, all the kids that hang out at this pizza place are a gang, and all the kids that hang out here are a gang, and all the kids at the skate park are a gang. And we were just like, what? Like, first of all, none of these people are scary enough to be gangs. And if we're a gang, we're definitely the gnarliest gang out of everyone listed. And my best friend at the time, this guy Mark Ockell, was like, well... You know, we're definitely the gnarliest gang. We need a gnarly name. And he was like, we're the Silly Pink Bunnies. And it was just one of those things we all laughed at. And then we started making, like, stickers and stencils to put around the city. And this was, like, you know, fucking 91, 1990. Uh, It started in the summer of 91. It's 29 years old this year. Uh, And we celebrate every year on Easter. Um, We go to a different city on Easter every year for the last 20 years. And yeah, next year, it'll be the 30th anniversary of the Silly Pink Bunny Gang. And we're at about, we had it in Brooklyn last Easter, and we had 100 people uh, at the big, we do like a mafia-style dinner on the Saturday night before Easter. And we give away awards to dudes every year, like for, you know, being the biggest piece of shit or being the least shitty. Nice. Uh, Yeah, so it's it's a good way to stay in touch. It started because I didn't, I mean, it started because of that article. But when I moved out here, I used it. Like, I made, I did graffiti with it and made stickers with it. And just because I wanted to seem like I was larger than I was, you know? Like, I was a part of this thing that at that time, there was only, like, 12 dudes. Oh. But as we all moved out and grew up, and, like, his friend and his friend of his friend, uh, and we started, I started perpetuating it more because I realized I was never moving back. Like, once I got the job in the print shop out of school and, like, I was paying taxes and, like, had a car. and Sure. You know, I just realized I probably wasn't going back to New York. And it was one of those things that I figured we could all stay friends forever if we, like, had this stupid gang and made it kind of like, uh, well, like the Elks or something where we meet up and have these annual whatever dinners. And I just never would have imagined it would have lasted this long. But it's, you know, these are like friends for life. I feel like people are more and more stoked every year. Like, Freddie just came back. He's like, dude, cool fucking Keith was on a boat playing yeah. fucking Dr. Octagon. Freddie's like- also that, like, you know. Freddie's like, there's an award named after Freddie. You know what I mean? Like, he's that. The Life of the Party Award. The Honorable Fred Levy Award. Yeah. Because he's just that guy. He's a fucking wild animal. He's a new neighbor, apparently. Yeah, he moved in across the street. Which <laughs> oh, is, boy. Look oh, out. Man, the whole neighborhood's worried, you know? He, like, he'd been looking for a place over here for a while. 
and he'd like come over ahead of time and lay down the groundwork. So yeah, like everywhere we go in the neighborhood, they already know him. And I'm like, man, I've been here 15 years. Those people don't fucking know me. <laughs> fucking Fred. But you can't beat the fact that he's just like the most personable little redheaded man on earth. Yeah. He's just, he's got an infectious laugh. We but I got to back up to the point of Dan's question. A silly pink bunny's a bro, you know? It's just a dude you shred with who's like pretty friendly, pretty funny. Just that dude. And we, we all know that guy, you know? For these annual, uh, what do you call them? Conventions. The, convention? Easter, the Easter convention. Is yeah. that an invite-only situation? No, we're not like an exclusive gang. You know what I mean? It's not hard to join. Just show up and don't be a dick. Yeah. There's like a no kooks clause that like if you bring a kook, you got to make him leave if he sucks. Right. Uh, yeah. I love it. It's that. pretty basic. It's not hard to join. It's just, yeah, it's just not hard to even get kicked it. out either. Just don't, yeah. be a, don't be a kook. Okay. And don't bring any kooks either. Yeah. Know? Has one, what's like some of the wildest shit that's gone down throughout the years? Has there been one where it's like, fuck, this dude got naked, jumped off the boat or some antic? That yeah, just- I mean, there was a while, like somewhere around our 25th anniversary, it had gotten to the point where there was too many people coming and like too much bad stuff was starting <laughs> to happen, you know, like, I don't know, like we probably should have gone to family court afterwards, you know, like. People were having kids and like dudes were coming and behaving poorly and it was just one of those things where I started to feel guilty. I was like, oh, this is gonna like destroy families and ruin lives and like get people fired. Yeah. Because like somewhere in our late 20s and early 30s, it was really becoming kind of hedonistic, you know? Like we went to Portland one year and it just was so fucking completely out of control. Oh. And uh, at that point, we had the 25th anniversary, then we stopped doing it for a few years just because I started to feel like this is literally just getting way too out of control and too many people are showing up and more than 100 people. It's like, you can't really do anything with, like, it's not like you're gonna go cruise around and go to a skate park with 100 dudes or like everyone goes out to dinner with 100 dudes. Like it just became so many people that it was like hard to deal with. So we didn't do it for a few years and uh, now we're doing it again. And it's slowly, by Brooklyn, it was 100 people again. Uh And Brooklyn was like the best one we've ever had. Oh, it was? Yeah. So people, I imagine, are going to go home and be like, Lord. holy fuck, you got to go next year. So I'm a little bit worried that next Easter is going to be like, and we're going back to Portland. Oh, shit. Uh, so be warned, Portland, slash, I don't know. you top cool Keith? Exactly. I don't <laughs> know. And do you get bummed at all about missing the uh, tricycle races? No. Uh-uh. <laughs> I have always felt a little bit sad that... There used to be a big wheel yeah, that's bomb I mean, down, down the, yeah, and I'd always be a little bit bummed that I'd miss that because yeah. I would love not. I don't think I would enter, but I would like wager on it or cheer or something. Maybe I'd bring like a sign or a pennant and like wave for my favorite yeah. big wheeler. But no, this is like it's as close as I have. I'm not very close with my family. I'm literally three thousand miles away for a quarter of a century. Yeah, and this is kind of like the equivalent of my family reunion. It's the only time I go to the airport every year to travel for something that isn't work. It's like the closest I get to a vacation. Okay. Just because my job's pretty easy and not the kind of thing you need to vacation from. Lucky. Let's take a quick time out, hear from some of our peeps, and we'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You talk a little bit about Gwen Vitello. Not a lot of people know about her, but um, she's been instrumental in 
both of our lives. Yeah, their whole family. I mean, like, this is one of those cliche things you think if you've worked uh, in that Northern California skateboard industry. But like I said, you know, a lot of people are like, Fausto's gnarly, and I'm sure he is. But man, he was fucking good to me. Mm-hmm. And his wife, uh, since, has been incredible to me. And like, I was always pretty close with Sally. I'm pretty friendly with Tony and was when he was young. Like, it's one of those families that brings so much to a city that's not an app. It's outlasted all that shit. It's outlasted all the other magazines. They started an art magazine the year I moved here. Like, everything that gets printed in that building was deeply influential to both skateboarding before my art career and my art, you know, since. And right. She's just, I don't know, man. She's really good to me. I did this thing at City Hall a couple of years ago, and uh, she has a special relationship with City Hall, and, like, I reached out to Juxtapose and was like, hey, you guys want to get in on this? And basically, she showed up at my opening and brought me a fucking cake with, like, City Hall on it. And, like, you know, she's just, Damn, she's super works. supportive in a way that, like, you know, because I, what, because I worked for your husband's company fucking 15 years ago? Like, she's just genuinely so supportive of what I do. Her and Sally both. And I, you know, I can't thank them enough. And again, like I said, it's the whole family. It, and it's, the, it's everything their family brought to the table. And not just the things Fausto gets credit for, but it's all the little things people don't know about. You know, like Fausto and Eric, who's like a more silent partner. Uh-huh. Without those two dudes and that entire empire, I, I would have been back in upstate New York 25 years ago or 23 years ago or whatever. Damn, yeah. You were the first artist to do the live-in at City Hall, right? Yeah, I don't think they'll ever do it again either. It was like the San Francisco Arts Commission had this idea. Uh, Meg Schiffler, who's the, well, I don't know. If, she basically directed my project. And she hit me up and she was like, hey, like we want you to design 100 drawings for the 100th anniversary of City Hall. And I was like, that's incredible. I would love to. However, like you got to get me a publishing deal. Like Somebody's got to make a book out of it because, and it's funny, like that's I initially thought, oh, maybe I can get like, juxtapose or Gwen or somebody like because I know publishers maybe they'll do it sure uh, and the Arts Commission got Chronicle to make it which was incredible because I was like you can't make a hundred drawings and expect anybody to go to an art show and remember half of them it's just you know if the point was to just create a hundred drawings and hang them up at City Hall and hope people would enjoy them it's just a lot of work you know yeah so I said if you get a publisher and you give me an office and they were like there's like a several year wait for an office at City Hall they're not just going to give you one and I was like I don't care if it's like a storage closet or you know, you can put me anywhere. And they offered me this cool room that used to have payphones in it, but it was a little bit stuffy and like, <laughs> yeah, there was no windows, you know? And I was sure. like, uh. Then they offered me this other one that was like a document storage room that's right on the ground floor, like right when you enter City Hall. And it, it was like a really big room full of like blueprints basically for the whole building, which I thought was really like, if I got to draw a hundred drawings about this fucking building in a hundred days, probably a good idea that I'm surrounded by all this ephemera that's like about the building. And it was designed by Albert Brown, who's the guy that designed my art school and designed Coit Tower, which yeah. is a pretty weird coincidental architecture thing in the city. Um, that I moved here to go to that school, that I live right by Coit Tower and eventually did a residency there. But, you know, to get asked to be at City Hall and do these hundred drawings when, like, I'm not a very politically driven guy, it was a real fucked up time. No offense, Ed Lee, rest in peace, but it was a real fucked up time to be working at San Francisco City Hall. Like, you know, all the stuff with Uber and Lyft and the things that Ed Lee was getting blamed for taking all this, you know, attention, money from tech. And it was just a crazy act. And he wow, got reelected. Yeah. He got reelected while I was there <laughs> by the largest Chinese voting bloc in the history of the state of California. And 
it just was a really, for a guy who's not very politically oriented and I wasn't drawing any very politically driven drawings, I mean, yeah. there is a shrimp boy drawing hidden within the hundred drawings, you know what I mean? Because it was a fucking crazy time. Have you thought about that at all? Like doing a series on like the city's weaknesses and what, you know? You know, I uh, I show in the city every four to five years the whole time I've lived here. Um, in the beginning, I show it all the time. But like once it got to the point where I had art shows in other cities and other places around the world i try to save it for here like do something special about the city you know like uh last few shows i've done here i did one about the barbary coast like 10 years ago that was about when i you know i got really into this neighborhood and there was a lot of history involved and i did a bunch of pieces about sort of founding figures in the city's history yeah as people were starting to move out be it that they were having kids or other i started doing work i did a show that was just about how much i love the city and things to love about it, it was a, like really positive body of work sure uh, I have a show here in December at a smaller gallery, a Hashimoto Gallery, um, and it's, you know, I mean, I've lived here 25 fucking years, and it was the most progressive 25 years in the history of the city since the gold rush. You know what I mean? Like the tech boom. Yeah. And I don't dwell on it, and I'm not mad about it, but it changed the city just as dramatically as people moving here to find gold, yeah. and in a very parallel way. And I got to make a body of work to me this year that's kind of about that, and I don't want to make negative stuff. I don't want to make a body of work that somebody looks at it and gets bummed or sad or mad. Like, I got to figure out a way to spin some of these stories right now in a, like the housing situation and the homeless situation and the fucking political situation here. And there's a lot of things that I should be making art about for this show in December that's just, you know, it's heavy. It's like hard to make art about. Yeah, and it's hard nowadays to make comic spin on it because people are so sensitive that you can't mess with certain things one of my really good friends uh broke ass stewart is doing these comedy sketches about you know weaknesses in the city at the moment and i couldn't get through the first one and it's not because it's not some of the shit is so precious to me that i can't listen to jokes about it it's too sensitive okay uh, i spent the last few years with my wife arguing about leaving here you know and in the end uh, I fought and fought and fought, and she just didn't want to be here anymore. And on a long list of reasons, she moved away. Uh, and my marriage ended of like seven years. It was like the most important relationship I've ever had. And a lot of what we fought about was this is not a smart place to try and retire. She's also an artist, and the two of us were trying to figure out a place to live and try to, you know. And the smart thing to do is pack up and move, you know. But I haven't, like, I don't know. This city has been so fucking good to me, and I'm so fucking loyal to it, maybe to a fault. But like my whole trajectory, the story we just talked about, like how the fuck did I move here with very little talent and very little chance of getting to do what I wanted to do? And 25 years later, like I get to work in a free studio that's like, you know, Amazing. like things happen with me and my relationship to the city and, you know, things like that city hall opportunity and things like being able to work in Coit Tower a few years later. And I just am not ready to leave here because... I feel like I still owe this place and I'm still in love with it, you know, and uh, probably to a fault. I've sacrificed so much to be here at this stage. I'm just not willing to leave. Sure. I understand that. Um, did you see that movie, uh, The Last Black Man in San Francisco? I did. Uh, I actually just had lunch with uh, Joe, the guy who directed it and wrote it. I've been trying to link up with those dudes. Yeah, we had mutual friends that introduced us on the Internet, and I am obsessed with... His father's book, his dad wrote Season of the Witch, David Talbot. Yeah. Which is like, you know, one of the greatest books about the city. And probably right up there with Herbert Asbury's like Barbary Coast books. Like it's it's a fucking incredible trajectory of crazy things that happened in San Francisco during the 60s that like I had never really put all those things together. Like I didn't ever, they're all things that happened before I was born. And they're bits of history I'm familiar with. 
I just didn't know they all happened within such a short period of time. Yeah. You know, like the Moscone and Milk murders and the fucking Jonestown massacre and just all this, you know, Zodiac so killer rich. and like all this shit that the city is really, the whole world was like, wow, that place is fucking crazy. <laughs> yeah. Drugs and hippies and it's the side of the city that I'm still like super proud of. That like, you know, when you meet somebody older and you're like, I'm from San Francisco, they're like, wow. I went there in the summer of 68 and saw the craziest shit I've ever seen in my life, you know? And uh, that side of the city is really attractive to me. As a matter of fact, I'm going to make some pieces for this show in December about chapters from Season of the Witch. Oh. I'm kind of hoping to sit down with uh, the guy that wrote it. But like I said, I had lunch with his son recently just because I feel like this father-son combo just created two of the most relevant pieces of art about the city ever. Yeah. And especially about the Latin in, in the last decade. And to me, it's like, man, this, dude, this kid's born and raised here. Right. And, you know, to make The Last Black Man in San Francisco is an incredible film because I saw the preview and I got anxiety and I thought, oh, God, this is going to be about, like, everybody's, you know, like, part of what happened to me, like, in the last year since my wife bounced is, like, I've tried to keep a glass-half-full attitude about the city at all times. I'm the guy in a bar anonymously. When people are bitching about something, I'll definitely lean over and be like, ah, you know, like... It's not really that bad, and like you can get through it if you try harder, or maybe if you hate it that much, you should pack up and bounce. Yeah. Uh, like it's just, you know, I'm trying to keep the glass half full, and I'm trying to stay as positive as possible. And this film, through the lens that these two kids grew up here and wrote this together, like two childhood friends wrote it, it's beautiful. It's genuinely a reminder of why it's we're so all still beautiful. here and the things about it that we love. And like, it did take me from the preview, and he said it. He's like, they transformed the direction of the film from like when they made the preview to when they finished the film, going from like, these are the things we're mad about and these are the things we're willing to fight for. And in the end, the direction of the film, in my opinion, completely flips around and it's like, these are the things about our city that are beautiful and timeless. And yes, we're mad and yes, it's changing, but like, here's the beauty that we'll see forever about this place. And like, so good. I don't know. I walked out of there and I'd cried several times during the film, but like, I walked out of there feeling incredible and was like, really looking forward to talking to the guy. And, asking him specifics about why they did this and why they did that and why was that in there and yeah you know little things like the skateboard the kid's carrying has the ben davis logo like on it and like you know i'm friends with mike davis ben's grandson and like i know a shitload about that company and i understand why it's so important to the bay area jacob davis ben's grandfather was the guy that made the riveted jeans for levi's back during the gold rush like their their family has a history of tailoring tailoring that far surpasses Levi's, which is one of those brands that the whole world looks at as like a San Francisco brand. Sure. But Ben Davis, which is still a family-owned company and very small, and like it's like being celebrated in the film just like every other classic landmark from San Francisco, you know? And it's little details like that that I think if, you know, Gary and Indiana watch this movie, there's little things like that, like subtle nods that they give. The fact that there's like a skateboarding reference in it and there's like you know, sort of all these local celebrities that have, like, tiny little cameos throughout uh, it. Like Day one. Yeah, day one so section cool. is so sick. Do you agree with the um, the thing they say in there is you can't hate San Francisco unless you love it? Yeah. As a matter of fact, as corny as it is, I may wind up getting a tattoo of that. And I don't have any, like, I don't have a lot of tattoos, and I certainly don't have, like, giant slogans or anything. But hmm. that's the bumper sticker on the film. That's the takeaway. That's the, like... Absolutely. Uh, he was telling me that there was a there was a moment where that looked like it was going to get cut, and I was like, man, that's the quote, and it's positive. It's that's like basically like when away. people start to complain about it, it's like, man, you can't. It's too easy right now to find fault and find things that suck and find things that are fucked up and find. And you, you know, I'm not saying ignore it. Mm-hmm. These are the realities of living here. Yeah. But I do think it's too simple right now 
right. to just like find the faults and poke at them. And I understand over a couple of beers, it's frustrating. Like people are venting frustrations about it, but I just think the film is a, is a really beautiful reminder that like, there's a lot of good reasons to still be here. And like, it really depends on the way you're viewing it and the lens you look through to see the city for what it is and realize what's happening is a transitional phase. It's not permanent. It's not like this place is just going to be like this from now forward. It'll continue to evolve. Sure. Whether it'll be finance or some other amazing thing that pushes it into the next phase of the city's life, I hope for fuck's sake I can afford to be here and see what it is because I want to see it grow into the next phase and become this amazing thing so that everybody that sat there shitting on it in the, the you know, oh, it's this, it's that, it's too expensive, it's too, it's, you know, yeah. will be able to realize that, man, it's, it's only seven miles across. You know how many changes this city's oh, gone through? Man. Just in the 25 years I was here, fuck since the beginning. So I think it's real easy to be like, you know, you read these articles like in the Washington Post and so where they condemn it to just being permanently fucked. And it's like, that's an ignorant thing to do. And you definitely haven't spent enough time to, here to even say that. And that leads back to your question in the quote, like, you can't fucking shit all over it and hate on it. You never loved it. You don't even understand how different it is from what it should be. You don't even know what it would be like if all the things you're bitching about weren't like that. Like, exactly. You need to be able to have first loved it deeply to understand why you might have the reason to hate it. And to be fair to that quote, I think if you really, really love it, you try to convince yourself you don't hate it. You try to find ways to continue to love it because sure. it's a bond and a feeling with the city you don't want to lose. You know, Otherwise, why are you here? It's too hard. And overall, just a life mantra too, just to like kind of keep it positive. Like it's easy to dive into depression, like in all, all kinds of ways. Yeah, like, definitely. oh, that sucks. That's, and I've been that dude. <clears throat> you know, we love all that shit. But at the end of the day, you don't want to drive it into the ground where no. you're like, I'm just a depressed dude. Yeah. And if you say that shit enough, like if you say the city sucks enough times and if you say the city's fucked enough times, now it's your MO. And that ruins your existence here, which Whoa. is why I said, like, if you're really that bummed on it, man, you got to go. Like, it's, yeah. it's time to go because you don't need to be here and complain. It's too difficult to be here. And this isn't even just like glass half full pod, positive Jeremy. This is like in general. I think that we, there's a, there's a hint of pride in the fact that we got into something that wasn't well known and it wasn't mainstream cool and it became that and it became like same thing with rap music like when i listened to that as a kid like that was not cool as a matter of fact i used to go to school wearing like an adidas tracksuit and like people would laugh at me i mean granted i was a little white kid too but <clears throat> all those things that we invested in became the coolest shit ever and on some level for me there's a little hint of like pride in the sense that like i was into that early on i supported right. it i contributed to it i added to it and now that's like mainstream cool yeah. And yeah, it's weird to have something that was that precious to you. I was just talking about this with, a, with uh, well, I'll name drop him. Me and Tommy Guerrero recently were having this Ooh. conversation about <laughs> how it, it bothers him that Thrasher's been co-opted and like turned into this, you know, Rihanna-esque mm -hmm. Freddie selling 450,000 of the fucking most bootlegged logo on earth this summer. Chinatown's two blocks away and we could probably hop on one foot before we found four or five fake Thrasher shirts. On some level, and I tried to, you know, I'm not arguing with one of, one of the raddest San Francisco dudes ever, but I did try to voice a reason with him. And I was like, look, you're much more invested in this than I'll ever be. You were out here from the fucking dawn of that shit, and you were born here. Like, your relationship with Thrasher far predates mine. You being in it's part of the reason I came here. That being said, I think it's cool that as other magazines have just fucking folded up and gone out of business, Thrasher's never been doing better. And it's because the the presence of the magazine, the fucking internet feed of all these incredible clips. Yeah. And the fact that now it's got this foundation of the soft goods just, I mean, they always did good. I was saying, when I worked at print time 20 years ago, they did good. Yeah. Be, we'd put that shit on the press and print it for days. <laughs> I just am proud of the fact that that simple fucking logo and what it represents 
went out into the world and became this larger thing that provides the mag a giant financial backbone has a fucking store on 6th Street. Like, that happened because of, you know, all this mainstream people wearing this logo that they may not know what it is, but, like, I don't know. I'm proud of it to see it out in the world becoming this larger thing and, like, giving Freddie a better paycheck and providing Thrasher with all this money where they can throw these fucking events and do all this shit where, man, their fucking contemporaries went out of business at the time where this thing became so fucking popular and the mag does well on its own. Sure. But again, trying to be the positive glass half full. Like I'm sure this. someone's going to hate on my angle. I like the fact that like while the other mags went out of business, Thrasher's soft good became like the fucking Izod shirt of the summer. You know what I mean? Like, It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, me and my girlfriend play this game where when she goes on trips... We'll do kind of like uh, she's at the airport waiting for a plane, and she'll be like, "How many Thrasher shirts? Yeah, do you see on yeah. Chad's? Just or just period? Like <laughs> walk tight. around and and count how many you see, and it's always like at least you know there's a bunch. It's one thing like Disneyland. if I see it here, or if I see it at Disneyland, or if I see it somewhere domestically. Mm. But man, I was in China two weeks ago, uh. and it was fucking bananas like everywhere, and especially at some point they took us all to like a bootleg mall. You know, with like bootleg everything. Them in there. And it was like, I couldn't even take a picture for Freddie. It was so overwhelmingly fucked. I was just like, you, you could literally. You guys know about this. Yeah, one. I could tie them all together and like, Fuck. you know, make a rope all the way back to California. Like there was millions of them. And again, millions of people in the street wearing them that probably have no idea what it is. Yeah. And like that was, I think, what bothers Tommy and a million other people. That it's like you've, 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 you've watered down this thing that was pure and powerful and important but again i I have to try and look at it in a positive way because it isn't going to go away and you can't fix it it'll fall out of popularity eventually yeah and this giant fucking backbone of shirt money is there to help support skateboarding and there to help support more fucking ill contests that thrasher does and sending dudes around the world to do their job and yeah paying you to do your job and like everybody i'm friends with that still works there like making their job that much more secure and i don't know to me that's like not more important than the fact that it got watered down, but it is the the trade-off, you know? Well, let's keep it positive. I like this positive. This positive could be the new punk rock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. Maybe it's just the, like the new old man. What's the best slice of pizza in North Beach? Oh, I can't say that one on the record. Got really? too many Yeah, I got too many friends. Oh. I will say that I live in the pizza triangle. There are three pizza places half a block from each other that don't compete with each other because they're three very different places. Is there a Chicago, a New York? A- Golden Boy, which is you know from the 70s and the neighborhood's most legendary slice, yeah. is a Sicilian square sheet pizza. They don't do anything else. Uh, they only do sheets of pizza. There's like five varieties and they don't change it. Uh-huh. You can't order any, like, oh, can I get this with? No, fuck you. Here's the pizzas in the window, point at a slice and eat it. And it's the recipe is unbeatable. The family that owns it, the Sodini family is just classic north beach family yeah and uh one of the very first trade art for free pizza for life spots i ever got and i just a relationship with their family that you couldn't pay for you know so that's the oldest tony's pizza is probably the most famous uh tony gem and johnny is my neighbor and like a 14-time world pizza champion who i think is from castro valley california originally and is just the sickest you know he moved into this neighborhood at a time where things were really slow Joe DiMaggio's steakhouse had gone out of business and there's all these restaurants closing and this guy who's somewhere around our age comes in here with this gigantic world pizza resume and just fucking totally revitalized this neighborhood. 
all these businesses opened around him because of his long line out front and his energy. I think he's got something crazy, like six restaurants out there, you know, all over the city. He's got one in the baseball stadium. He's kind of like... Oh, yeah. Okay. I've had that slice. Yeah. He's kind of out there, like, waving the North Beach flag on a much larger scale. And at the opposite end of him and Golden Boy is this place called Balnici, which is owned by uh, an Italian family that moved here like a decade ago with no restaurant experience at all. And just opened this crazy... At the time, it was a bakery, but it's a pizza place now. Okay. And the mom, Stefania, makes all the food. And the dad and the two sons run the front of the house. And it's... Uh, it's the it's the sleeper. It's the one less people know about. Okay. And I highly recommend it to anybody listening to this because you're going to thank me next time you see me. Oh, Tony's sick. is famous and delicious and incredible. He has like nine different ovens and a million different styles of pizza. Yeah. Golden Boy just has one style. Balnici also has one style, but it's traditional Neapolitan, like paper thin with a crispy edge around the outside. And okay. it's reasonably priced. It's like a really, really, really that good one up spot. on the way home. Do you consider yourself kind of a pizza connoisseur coming mm-hmm. from New York? Yeah. No, you- no, not in the same way that everybody used to be like, oh, there's no good slices. Has to be thin. Oh, I hated that. People would always be like, oh, San Francisco's pizza's shit. Yeah. It's like, man, R&L's pizza's rad. <laughs> and it has been since the day I got yeah. here. I remember like my first week in San Francisco. I, well, Maybe not. Maybe it was a little bit later. But I remember the first time I had R&L's and I was like, what the fuck's everybody talking about? Like, there's no good. It's the same as like any good slice on the streets of New York. The common conception that I've always heard my whole life, and I haven't spent that so much time. too much salt in the water. San Francisco can't make a slice of pizza, and New York can't make a burrito. That's what it's I've a fun always thing heard. To, it's a fun conversation to have. You know what I mean? It's a funny like piece of banter while you wait for a slice somewhere. Yeah. Or a burrito. Sure. Uh, to be fair, I still haven't had a good burrito in New York, so no offense, New York. I don't spend enough time there. Yes. Maybe sir. if somebody were to list off the hot burrito spots, I'd do a little homework. But to be fair, I've never had a burrito outside the city limits that was very good. Yeah. And I don't say that with any spite towards the world's burritos. I'm probably just not finding the right spots. San Diego makes some interesting Oh, ones. yeah, the ones with the fries in it. Yeah. Let's say outside of California, to right. be fair to the rest of yeah. the state. Yeah. And I did have a pretty good one in Mexico City. Oh, excuse me. Because the sign said San Francisco style burritos, which I thought was wicked funny because I was in fucking Mexico. (laughs) That's amazing. What are some of the top pissing holes around here for you? Specs, probably the best bar in the neighborhood for a really long list of reasons. Mm -hmm. It just has endless charm. One of my good friends bartends there and it's one of those bars in the city like Zeitgeist that I've been going to since I turned 21 and it's just barely changed at all. Those are the places I'm drawn to. Vesuvio's across the street from Specs for the same reason. It's timeless. It's where all the old beat poets used to drink. It's directly next to City Lights. Oh, sick, yeah. Um, all the bartenders there are pretty and nice. I don't know. It's just timeless. Classic vibe. I Those are my two probably favorite bars. I also really like Tony Nick's, which is just down here on the corner. And I really like Grant and Green because it's a little thuggy. I used to like this place kind of by over there that uh, you put quarters in and this window would open oh, up. Oh, man miss that spot you know it's been uh, a long time since it closed and there were all these rumors tosca had rented or leased it and there was some talk that it was going to become some kind of bar and that it'd be kind of like run by the same people as tosca tosca just went out of business like Uh. week before last times have been tough around here the neighborhood's kind of shutting down fuck between all the mandatory retrofits uh, because when our politics are terrible, Europeans and Canadians aren't really coming here on vacation as much. So tourism is 60% down from a couple of years ago. 
Uh, and this is one of those neighborhoods, much like where I grew up, that tourist traffic really is a built-in part of its economy. Yeah. That's why we have so many restaurants and bars in like an eight-block radius. Yeah. They're, it's crickets over here, and stuff's starting to close. And That's a bummer. Yeah, it is. And it's people are like, well, why? It's the city's fault. It's this guy's fault. That's, it's just a huge list. It's a long list of shit. Yeah. And it's really sad. And with Tosca closing, even though I wasn't a huge fan... It really puts a nail in the coffin that like that's a fucking famous place. You know, it's been there a long time. Uh, Sean Penn and like some other dudes helped reinvent it a few years ago. That's when I heard it was going to be connected to the Lusty, and now they're both just sitting there dormant. And wow. all of Broadway is about to be shuttered. You know what no. I mean? But, uh, my friends who ran Naked Lunch, rest in peace, for a decade in the old Enrico spot just closed recently. Bamboo Hut. Most of Broadway's closed. Big Al's is there for well, right? No, Big Al's is a corner store that's almost never open. Yeah, it's like a bong shop that's like no. sells random shit and it's almost never open the hungry eye just closed permanently that's the one with the full bar that was topless only um, yeah i'm not a huge supporter of the strip clubs like i don't go in there and spend money yeah but in an odd way like a lot of my neighbors i just love them i love sure. them i love the element on broadway i love that the neighborhood itself it's is a little bit touristy and a little yeah. bit sweet and my dad used to say when we when we'd sit at specs and have a beer that it was one of the most interesting intersections in america because it's like this fucking body gnarly coked out strip club district that at one time was like the entertainment capital of the west coast you know like venues and theaters and Absolutely. places you'd go out to lavish dinners with your family and then take them to see a show you know by the 60s it was strip clubs by the 80s it was coke by yeah. the 90s when i got here it was still a little bit of everything uh -huh. there was theaters you know like there used to be uh the, not where the crowbar is and you know, there was like Nirvana played out on Broadway back in the day, and there used Fuck to be yeah. punk clubs when Tommy and all that's those guys right. were younger. Yeah. Matt Bowie Garden. Exactly, that's on Broadway. I was, I was fumbling stone. for the names. Yeah, that yeah. was all gone by yeah. the time I got here. And there oh, was okay. like uh, one left, I think, when I still got here in the '90s, but I wasn't old enough to go to it. Dude, so <clears> many epic. Shows. But yeah, look at that. Broadway's about to be abandoned ship, and I again, I'm staying positive about all of it. I think that gives Broadway a chance to be reinvented as something sick, like. Maybe the city will become reasonable and it'll become some kind of green district with like weed friendly bars and dispensaries, or it'll become a place where restaurants do like 60s themed something. Like, I just hate the fact that they're never going to take those signs down. The, the, the old look of Broadway and the strip club vibe will always be there. Oh, okay. So I'm kind of hoping as That's they good. start to fade out that something new and exciting goes in. And How sick would it be because the marina kind of took over the mission? What if the marina became the new mission? They just swapped. It'd be so badass. Sean John's down there in the marina. Fucking Cyrus is out there. We're fucking Pier 39 is the new fucking 500 club. I wouldn't be mad about any of that, actually. <laughs> I, would I would be shocked, but it would make things a lot easier for me because I wouldn't have to go as far, you know? Oh, man. I could walk to the mission instead of having to, like, commute back and forth. Is uh, Nate still down at the International? Nate Jones? That I don't know. Okay. Not for any reason. I, I've only been in that bar once, and what was uh, like right before I graduated college. Okay. And it was before Nate worked there. All right. Uh, during the time of the Newell House, and for zero reason, I just never really went over there. I stopped drinking for a lot of years, was part of it. Mm. Um, so I didn't go to any bars in the neighborhood for a long time. I got four years. Really? Yeah. Currently, me and Steve switch. Once Steve started drinking, I you're stopped. like, oh, we need another guy to take time yeah, off. He used okay. to take care of us all the time. Yeah, like ASR days, he was the sober guy that made sure we got wherever we. Well, and to be fair to Steve's drinking, he's pro. It's not like he, <laughs> no one's ever got to make sure he gets home. You know what I mean? Like I've, I've had big nights with him for years since he started, and he's not. Other than the fact that he's drunk, he's not a whole lot different. You know yeah. what I mean? He's never ever 
out of control. He might and to have be fair, vicariously through us on how not to. He might have. He might have learned how not to be a how not to be a douche because so many times he had to deal with the kook and like get somebody home or get somebody out of the place or whatever. Yeah. So by the time he picked up the hobby, he already was pretty knowledgeable about how to do it right. And I don't know if it was our gang. I think it was probably just a recipe of shit in his life. Right. Okay. We're winding down for sure, but there's a couple of things I want to touch on beforehand before we do. One being the unbelievers, because mm. uh, people don't really talk about that with you too much, and uh, <laughs> it wasn't real popular. It was pretty short lived, but it's kind of a cool thing. Like, well, it was like you and Scott Bourne, basically. Mm-hmm. And how long did it last? A couple years. Couple I think. Years. I think just under three years. Who was your favorite team rider? Scott. You got any cool stories about him working with him in those times? He's the best. Yeah. We could not be more opposite. Like we're just completely different as dudes. Mm-hmm. The one thing we do have in common, and I don't say this with any disrespect to him whatsoever, neither one of us were good enough to do the jobs that we got. Like I wasn't artistically gifted enough, and that motherfucker worked to be a pro skateboarder. You know what I mean? He fucked himself up because he wanted it bad. You know, and he's a fucking wild animal. <laughs> He didn't have the, the athletic prowess of a Cardiel or something. He had the fucking inner gnar that, you know what I mean? Like, he just, he's gnarly. He's a gnarly dude who just lives, like, every second of his fucking life since the day he shot out. Like, he's just, he grew up with a really intense dad who was a fucking preacher. Right. And his mom, who I've met, was incredible. Like, after his dad died, his mom fucking took a sailboat and sailed around the world by herself. Whoa. Yeah, like, he's from superior stock. Like, he's a fucking wild animal of a human being. North Kaka, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of that whole era of dudes that came out of there that you he wouldn't fit in that pack in right. a million years, but he's friends with all those dudes. And, like, I don't, I don't know anybody that knows him really well that has, like, a bad thing to say about him. You know, he's very, uh, he's self-obsessed and he's a lot of things, but... Man, he's he's a fucking... I've never met anyone like him, and he was definitely my favorite part of that entire period. Experience. I wouldn't have done it without him. By the time I left Think, I didn't really want to do skateboarding full-time. Yeah. I had always kind of felt when I worked out there that there were an awful lot, and this is no disrespect to any of them, there were a lot of guys that were older trying to tell younger dudes what was cool, mm. and I was afraid if I stayed in it too long, I'd be older trying to tell younger dudes what's cool. And, like, I do board graphics now, and I always feel a little weird... Because I'm like, I don't think younger dudes are going to look at this and think it's cool. I feel like if I do them now, I'm a little bit... I don't skate regularly. Uh, I have a lot of injuries that still bother me. And like, I don't know, for a million reasons at 45, I'm not that connected to it. So I feel like my relationship to it is a little distant. Mm-hmm. And it was part of the reason when I left Think, I just didn't really want to do it full time anymore. But this opportunity came up. Systems at the time who had made Supernaut made the wood. And they were one of the raddest. Boards were made one at a time, which not a lot of people were doing. Their equipment wasn't set up to press a stack. It pressed boards individually because oh, they, they were a pressed plywood company that did the, like Eames chairs and shit like that, you know? Yeah. So their equipment pressed one board at a time. So not only were they like, the guys that made them made furniture and they were anal. The defects stacked looked like, this, you know, it was a mountain of boards that weren't perfect. Right. And they, if it wasn't perfect, they didn't sell it. Oh, man. So I felt like the quality of what it was, you know, at the time when I worked at Think, they were always fumbling for, you know, boards from this guy or boards from that guy or RPM or whatever it was. Yeah. These guys just made them one at a time. And because my grandfather was a woodworker, you know, the guy that made the boards was one guy. It wasn't like a factory. It was a guy. And so I could go in there and hang out with him and watch him make boards and sand them one at a time. And, like, he gave a shit, this dude. Oh, wow. His bag, he had nothing to do with skateboarding, the guy that made the boards. So he just, it might as well have been a chair. And to me, it was like... I guess to go from the deluxe <laughs> and think empire where it was just mass produced, beautiful 
things yeah. that they made hundreds of. This guy was making some. You know, like, we'd do a run of boards sometimes where there would only be a hundred. Because, like, it just, you know, for whatever reason. And it was a tiny company, <clears throat> and I really enjoyed it. But Scott moved to Europe at some point, and I, I, I had to do it all by myself. Uh, and I was trying to juggle, like... Who, were, who was the team? Howard Cook, J.R. Neves, and Scott, mainly. Uh, Jason Jesse rode for us for a while. Oh. Uh, during a time That's where right. Jason was doing auto mowdown. Yeah. And that was really special as well, because he kind of fit the mold at that point. He was more, more into motorcycles and, like... Yeah building weird ramps and riding motorcycles on them like auto mowdown at that time was a really crazy place to visit he was starting to do the driven and that's when he stopped doing stuff with us but there was a weird window where he rode for our company and i got to do jason jesse board graphics you know it was like did you get to meet him and stuff yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. he's like become a real good friend of mine and uh, i had known him uh i don't know that he no i think he i i knew him at woodward when i was little like, I went to Woodward the year I graduated high school and uh -huh. got a job working in the bike shop, like, fixing bikes. Uh, and that's when I got to know him. He was, like, wicked cool, you know? He and at a time best. where it was, like, the 90s, he wasn't, like, you know what I mean? It was, like, I think I went there in 1992. Yeah. And, like, Vert was starting to not be that rad, and he was still looked at as this, like, 80s Vert legend. And uh, I don't know, it was a cool time to meet him. He was a super, 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 one of those dudes that's far more interesting and funny than I ever thought about his athleticism. Oh. Like, he's just a fucking fantastic human being. And again, that, that relationship with him and Scott was also really, like, the three of us sitting in a room, we couldn't be more different. Those two guys uh, yeah. are really loud and really engaging, and I'm just not. Uh, but it was a great memory and a really good time. And I appreciate you bringing it up, because no one ever does. Yeah. And, I, and, like, when I look through my board collection, they're the ones I'm most proud of. Because, like, how the fuck do we even do that? I have a Scott Bourne one with the, I think it's a pirate, or it's a sailboat or something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, usually when somebody works for, the, like, the, the Fausto Eric Empire, and yeah. you leave... There's a bit of, like, fuck that guy that follows behind you. Right. And I either did a nice job or was friendly enough with everybody that when that came out, they sold it at the deluxe store, which was unheard of at that time. Yeah. Uh, but I think because Jim and, like, all those dudes knew that, like, I was out there still trying, you know, and I had no business doing it. And Scott didn't either. And everybody knew that company was going to last eight <laughs> minutes. It wasn't like it is now where, like, tiny companies are revered as, like, this awesome thing. Sure. Uh Tiny companies came and went in like 10 seconds because that's not what people were buying. And I, you know, like I said, I don't have anything but positive memories about it. But to the point of like this whole job that I had to get me to there, yeah. those dudes sold that shit in the deluxe store at a time where there were no that's, outside brands. And I was really, uh, to this day, I appreciate all those guys for doing that because it probably would have lasted a lot less if they hadn't helped it out. Shout out to Matt D. Shout out. And Dennis Fougere, who managed the shop before him. Yeah, exactly. True or false, there was a statue made for you that got stolen. Uh, false. False. That was, uh, I made a statue with a friend of mine that I grew up skating with. Oh. Who lives in L.A. and uh -huh. makes, like, giant foam sculpture for, like, film and television. Yeah. I got a chance to do a mural on Fell and Laguna. Or, excuse me, Hate and Laguna. Um, and I had lived near there in college. And, like, you know that karma lump? that used to stick out of the wall on Laguna that he did a, I think he did a frontside grind on it in a line in some Thrasher video, actually. Uh -huh. You know what I'm talking about? He's coming down Laguna going towards Market Street. Yeah. And there used to be those, like, bulges that's not even really a ledge. Yeah. But he, like, grinded it. Yeah. Right there. Okay. Uh, when I was in college, we hung out there. There was, like, a ledge that we'd sit on and, like, you know, smoke weed before we went skating or whatever and just kind of lurk there. Right. So when I got asked to do a mural on that block, they were doing a, they were going to renovate that entire city block. And they asked all these artists to come in and paint murals while it was in transition. And I was like, oh, I'll do it, but I have to have the corner. Because it had this funky, like, ledge thing, like a shelf. <clears throat> and so my friend and I sculpted this real fucked up looking fiberglass bunny. And I didn't ask them, but I just went there and, like, 
poured a bunch of liquid nails and like bolted it on there. Um, and it, you know, you either loved it or you hated it. It was this like six foot tall pink bunny sculpture that you couldn't miss. Uh, as you drove up Hate Street, you just, it was like, what the fuck is that? Uh. And it was only supposed to be there for like six months to a year while they did the renovations, but it took three years. And so after three years, the thing had been like lit on fire and like <laughs> had fucking fire, okay. had ants living in it and like crackheads used it to climb up into this like living yeah. space above it. And it just has this crazy, there's a whole like podcast about that fucking thing. But anyway, when it went to come down, uh, we were going to destroy it. London Breed, our mayor, who at the time was the neighborhood supervisor, came and we gave like a eulogy about this statue and we destroyed it with a crane. Like we had this funeral and a guy blew like taps on a horn. Mm-hmm. And then the neighborhood raised uh, 70 grand to build a bronze one. And it's the largest crowdfunded bronze statue in the state. And it's right on hate between Laguna and Buchanan. And it's like one of those things that is like you wouldn't ever be able to imagine how fucking weird it was to have that thing get made. Dude, you've had a lot of rad shit go down. That's well, so sick. And you like to hope that it's because, like, you know, I try to be as positive to the city as possible, and the city's been super positive to me. You know, like, right. things like that would have never fucking happened anywhere else. No city in the country is going to be like, oh, I love that goofy pink statue with, like, human feces all over the back of it. Let's build a giant version of it. That's a very San francisco thing to do. Well, last thing is growing old gracefully. How do we do this? Well, we do live in the city where, like, you know, like Emperor Norton and dudes like that that never quite grow old. Timeless youth that this city sort of perpetuates. Well, and like Jake always told me, hang out with the younger kids and you'll stay young. I wasn't going to name drop him twice in one podcast, <laughs> but yeah, he's who I think of. Uh-huh. That dude was sort of like kind of like ageless. Right. You know what I mean? The way he behaved, the way he talked. He had a presence in my coffee shop where people would always ask me about him because they knew I knew him. And it's like, there's a lot of that here. Like, you can sort of be the age you want to be in San Francisco, and you can grow old when you feel like it. Uh And I mean, not that physically you won't grow old and have problems, but in terms of how you present yourself to the city and how accepting the city is about choice in lifestyle or choice in personal style or choice in how old you want to tell people you are. Like, it's one of those places where you can sort of reinvent yourself and you get to make the rules as to how old you are or feel, you know? And I think that's something that's very specific to here. Absolutely. You don't see a lot of like, actually you do now, but you didn't used to see a lot of 55-year-old skateboarders in New York. You know what I mean, for example? Yeah. Uh, now that's changing, but that's something I remember moving here and seeing 50-year-old skateboard dudes like bombing down the street. Like that's just always been a part of this city because it's been here so long and there's such an abundance of skate culture here mm-hmm. that as we transition into being old men gracefully, there's a lot of fucking old man skateboarders that just didn't exist before. And I think that's amazing. That helps. Something that I think, you know, like helps people grow old gracefully to not have to abandon things like that that are a part of who you are for sure well dude thanks for taking the time with me i'm gonna say this is one of my top favorites now you just went into the top three i don't want to name any names because those guys give me free drinks sometimes somewhere else that's tight because i like i said when we started i'm the worst skateboarder on the (laughs) roster like i can guarantee there is not a guy that has had this interview that was worse than i am but and that's only because most of my competition got paid to do it you know here's one thing i'll say about you i think since I met you, your evolution is probably one of the most gross out of any of my guests. Like seeing what you've done since I met you, most of the people like Tim was already a rad skater. He was already pro like, and seeing what you've done, like I'm proud to call you a friend and and be able to go to your art shows with my girlfriend. And she's so stoked on your stuff or like, just dude the fucking jeremy fish day in the city all the things it's been really 
Like, that's amazing. I know everyone that's close to you is just like, you're this thing that people hold on to. They're like, fuck yeah, let's go. Well, I appreciate it because for me, it's like, you know, I do a lot of interviews that are about art. And most of them, the part about skateboarding becomes like two sentences or something. Mm -hmm. They're like, oh, you worked in the skateboard industry. Tell me about that. Yeah. And I do. And it's like, it's actually more important than a lot of the art. Like, not a lot of people, unless I get to do these interviews with you or like the one with Tommy where it's like, it's about skateboarding and that's what we're going to talk about and it's what we have in common. It's how we know each other. I think a lot of like, like young art dudes don't realize what an important part of my trajectory it is. And like, no one would know who I was if it wasn't for like slap and things like that, that like put it out into the world on a larger scale. The big stupid. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking shout out to Mark, Mark Whiteley. I shout told out. Tony, can we call the slap message board the big stupid now? Incredible. <laughs> I think somehow I would get indirect hate for that. Oh man. But no, I appreciate that dude. I also like talking about this time in my life because no one really asks. Like most interviews have more to do with what I'm doing now Correct. than what I did to get here. Uh-huh. And I do think for a younger artist, especially because skateboarding promotes so much of that now. There's a lot more. I get a ton of kids that send me their stuff where they're like a little skate dude that draws his own whatever. And it's like, I got inspired by guys like Neil Blender and Mark and Dan. Yeah. Like dudes who ripped that drew their own stuff. And it's cool that I don't rip, but like there's enough art connected with skateboarding now that I think it, it promotes it from within. And, Definitely. Kids that skate, even if they suck at it, still draw all over their shit just because they know that's a part of the culture they're involved in. It's important when I do these because young kids get to hear that and realize like, oh shit, that's how he got to be this guy? Because it's not that crazy. It's like a, you just got to kind of work hard and actually really want it, you know? Fuck yeah. Well, we're going to go do an old classic motorhome song. Uh, I think it's appropriately, <laughs> you know, we we talked about Steve a bunch he, and yeah, uh, Matt to, D. Shout out to Coons. But we're going to get out. into the motherfucking van. Oh, nice. Jeremy, thank you so much. It's definitely been my pleasure. And uh, thank you guys for tuning in. We out of here.
Thank you for listening to another episode of Talkin' Schmidt. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Anchor, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. When you subscribe, you'll get notifications every Tuesday of new episodes the minute they become available. Also, please leave reviews and a five-star rating. It's the best way to help the show grow up them charts. All the episodes will always remain free to my listeners, but if you'd like to help support the show, you can do so at our website, talkinschmidt.com, where you can pick up some merchandise like stickers, beanies, hats, possibly even a t-shirt. The website has an entire archive of the episodes with extra photos and sometimes even video. If you have personal pics of our Talking Schmidt guests, please send them to me at epicallytrife at yahoo.com and maybe your photo will end up on the site or better yet on Talking Schmidt's Instagram account. All interviews are conducted, edited, and produced by me, Schmitty. The intro music is Mary's Cross by the band Nature, and a special shout-out goes to my executive director, Cheryl Camisa. Shout-out. Love it! Until next week, this is Talkin' Schmidt, where the Rolodex is deep, but the conversation is deeper. Talkin' Schmidt. Talkin' Schmidt. Talkin' Schmidt. <laughs> Talkin' Schmidt. <laughs>